0: Volume 1, Chapter 6 of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 1, Chapter 6. And now let the reader. Passing over some short period of time, we introduced to our happy circle. Adrian, Idris, and I were established in Windsor Castle. Lord Raymond and my sister inhabited a house which the foreman had built on the borders of the great park near Perdita's cottage, as was still named the low-roofed abode, where we two, poor even in hope, had each received the assurance of our felicity. We had our separate occupations and our common amusements. Sometimes we passed whole days under the leafy cupboard of the forest without books and music. This occurred during those rare days in this country, when the sun mounts his ethereal throne in unclouded majesty, and the windless atmosphere is a bath of pellucid and grateful water, wrapping the senses in tranquillity. When the clouds veiled the sky, and the wind scattered them there and here, rending their woof and strewing its fragments through the aerial plains. Then we rode out and sought new spots of beauty and repose. When the frequent rains shut us within doors, evening recreation followed morning study, ushered in by music and song. Idris had a natural musical talent, and her voice, which had been carefully cultivated, was full and sweet. Raymond and I made a part of the concert, and Adrian and Perdita were devout listeners. Then we were as gay as summer insects, playful as children. We ever met one another with smiles and read content and joy in each other's countenances. Our prime festivals were held in Perdita's cottage. Nor were we ever weary of talking of the past or dreaming of the future. Jealousy and disquiet were unknown among us, nor did the fear or hope of change ever disturb our tranquillity. Others said we might be happy. We said we are. When any separation took place between us, it generally so happened that Idris and Perdita would ramble away together, and we remained to discuss the affairs of nations and the philosophy of life. The very difference of our dispositions gave zest to these conversations. Adrian had the superiority in learning and eloquence, But Raymond possessed a quick penetration, and a practical knowledge of life, which usually displayed itself in opposition to Adrian, and thus kept up the ball of discussion. At other times we made excursions of many days' duration, and crossed the country to visit any spot noted for beauty or historical association. Sometimes we went up to London, and entered into the amusements of the busy throng. Sometimes our retreat was invaded by visitors from among them. This change made us only the more sensible to the delights of the intimate intercourse of our own circle, the tranquillity of our divine forest, and our happy evenings in the halls of our beloved castle. The disposition of Idris was peculiarly frank, soft, and affectionate. Her temper was unalterably sweet, and although firm and resolute on any point that touched her heart, she was yielding to those she loved. The nature of Perdita was less perfect, but tenderness and happiness improved her temper, and softened her natural reserve. Her understanding was clear and comprehensive, her imagination vivid, she was sincere, generous, and reasonable. Adrian, the matchless brother of my soul, the sensitive and excellent Adrian, loving all and beloved by all, yet seemed destined not to find the half of himself, which was to complete his happiness." HE OFTEN LEFT US AND WANDERED BY HIMSELF IN THE WOODS, OR SAILED IN HIS LITTLE skiff. HIS BOOKS HIS ONLY COMPANIONS. HE WAS OFTEN THE GAYEST OF OUR PARTY, AT THE SAME TIME THAT HE WAS THE ONLY ONE VISITED BY FITS OF DESPONDENCY. HIS SLENDER FRAME SEEMED OVERCHARGED WITH THE WEIGHT OF LIFE, AND HIS SOUL APPEARED RATHER TO INHABIT HIS BODY THAN UNITE WITH IT. I WAS HARDLY MORE DEVOTED TO MY IDRIS THAN TO HER BROTHER, AND SHE LOVED HIM AS HER TEACHER her friend, the benefactor who had secured to her the fulfillment of her dearest wishes. Raymond, the ambitious, restless Raymond, reposed midway on the great high road of life, and was content to give up all his schemes of sovereignty and fame, to make one of us the flower of the field. His kingdom was the heart of Perdita. His subjects her thoughts, by her he was loved, respected as a superior being, obeyed, waited on. No office, no devotion, no watching was irksome to her, as it regarded him. She would sit apart from us and watch him, she would weep for joy to think that he was hers. She erected a temple for him in the depth of her being, and each faculty was a priestess vowed to his service. Sometimes she might be wayward and capricious, but her repentance was bitter, her return entire, and even this inequality of temper suited him who was not formed by nature to float idly down the stream of life. During the first year of their marriage, Perdita presented Raymond with a lovely girl. It was curious to trace in this miniature model the very traits of its father. The same half-disdainful lips and smile of triumph, the same intelligent eyes, the same brow and chestnut hair, her very hands and taper fingers resembled his. How very dear she was to Perdita. In progress of time, I also became a father. And our little darlings, our playthings and delights, called forth a thousand new and delicious feelings. Years passed us. Even years. Each month brought forth its successor. Each year one to the gone-by. Truly our lives were a living comment on that beautiful sentiment of Plutarch, that, Our souls have a natural inclination to love, being born as much to love as to feel, to reason, to understand and remember. We talked of change and active pursuits, but still remained at Windsor, incapable of violating the charm that attracted us to our secluded life. (inaudible) Pariamo aver qui tutto il ben raccolto, che fra mortali in più parte si rimembra. Now also that our children gave us occupation, we found excuses for our idleness in the idea of bringing them up to a more splendid career. At length our tranquillity was disturbed, and the course of events, which for five years had flowed on in hushing tranquillity, was broken by breakers and obstacles that woke us up from our pleasant dream. A new Lord Protector of England was to be chosen— and at Raymond's request, we removed to London to witness and even take part in the election. If Raymond had been united to Idris, this post had been his stepping-stone to higher divinity, and his desire for power and fame had been crowned with fullest measure. He had exchanged a sceptre for a lute, a kingdom for Perdita. Did he think of this as we journeyed up to town? I watched him, but could make but little of him. He was particularly gay, playing with his child, and turning to sport every word that was uttered. Perhaps he did this because he saw a cloud upon Perdita's brow. She tried to rouse herself, but her eyes were now and then filled with tears, and she looked wistfully on Raymond and her girl, as if fearful that some evil would betide them, and so she felt. A pre-sentiment of ill hung over her. She leaned from the window looking on the forest, and the turrets of the castle, and as these became hid by intervening objects, she passionately exclaimed, Scenes of happiness, scenes sacred to devoted love. When shall I see you again? And when I see ye, shall I be still the beloved and joyous Pyrrolita, or shall I, heartbroken and lost, wander among your groves the ghost of what I am? Why, silly one, cried Raymond, what is your little head pondering upon? That of a sudden you have become so sublimely dismal. Cheer up, or I shall make you over to Idris, and call Adrian into the carriage, who, I see by his gesture, sympathizes with my good spirits. Adrian was on horseback. He rode up to the carriage, and his gaiety, in addition to that of Raymond, dispelled my sister's melancholy. We entered London in the evening, and went to our several abodes near Hyde Park. The following morning, Lord Raymond visited me early. I come to you, he said, only half assured that you will assist me in my project, but resolved to go through it, whether you concur with me or not. Promise me secrecy, however, for if you will not contribute to my success, at least you must not baffle me. Well, I promise, and now, and now, my dear fellow, for what have we come to London, to be present at the election of a protector? and to give a yea or nay for his shuffling grace of... Or for that noisy Ryland? Do you believe, Vernay, that I brought you to town for that? No. We will have a protector of our own. We will set up a candidate and ensure his success. We will nominate Adrian, and do our best to bestow on him the power to which he is entitled by his birth, and which he merits through his virtues. Do not answer. I know all of your objections, and will reply to them in order. First, whether he will or he will not consent to become a great man. Leave the task of persuasion on that point to me, I do not ask you to assist me there. Secondly, whether he ought to exchange his employment of plucking blackberries and nursing wounded partridges in the forest for the command of a nation. My dear Lionel, we are married men. And find employment sufficient in amusing our wives and dancing our children. But Adrian is alone, wifeless, childless, unoccupied. I have long observed him. He pines for want of some interest in life. His heart, exhausted by his early sufferings, reposes like a new healed limb, and shrinks from all excitement. But his understanding, his charity, his virtues, want a field for exercise and display we will procure it for him. Besides, is it not a shame that the genius of Adrian should fade from the earth like a flower in an untrod mountain path, fruitless? Do you think nature composed his surpassing machine? For no purpose, believe me, he was destined to be the author of infinite good to his native England. Has she not bestowed on him every gift in prodigality, birth, wealth, talent, goodness? does not every one love and admire him? And does he not delight singly in such efforts as manifest his love to all? Come, I see that you are already persuaded, and will second me when I propose him to-night in Parliament. You have got up all your arguments in excellent order, I replied, and, if Adrian consent, they are unanswerable. One only condition I would make, that you do nothing without his concurrence. I believe you are in the right, said Raymond. Although I had thought at first to arrange the affair differently, be it so. I will go instantly to Adrian, and if he inclines to consent, you will not destroy my labor by persuading him to return and turn squirrel again in Windsor Forest. Idris, you will not act a traitor towards me. Trust me, replied she. I will preserve a strict neutrality. For my part, said I, I am too well convinced of the worth of our friend, and the rich harvests of benefits that all England would reap from his protectorship, to deprive my countrymen of such a blessing, if he consent to bestow it on them. In the evening Adrian visited us. Do you cable also against me? said he, laughing. And will you make common cause with Raymond, in dragging a poor visionary from the clouds to surround him with the fireworks and blasts of earthly grandeur? instead of heavenly raisiners, I thought you knew me better. I do know you better, I replied, than to think that you would be happy in such a situation. But the good you would do to others may be an inducement, since the time has probably arrived when you can put your theories into practice, and you may bring about such reformation and change, as will conduce to the perfect system of government which you delight to portray. You speak of an almost forgotten dream, said Adrian, his countenance slightly clouding as he spoke. The visions of my boyhood have long since faded into the light of reality. I know now that I am not a man fitted to govern nations, sufficient to me if I keep in wholesome rule the little kingdom of my own mortality. But do you not see, Lionel, the drift of our noble friend? A drift perhaps unknown to himself but apparent to me. Lord Raymond was never born to be a drone in the hive and to find content in our pastoral life. He thinks that he ought to be satisfied. He imagines that his present situation precludes the possibility of aggrandizement. He does not, therefore, even in his own heart, plan change for himself. But do you not see that, under the idea of exalting me? He is choking out a new path for himself a path of action from which he has long wandered. Let us assist him, he the noble, the warlike, the great in every quality that can adorn the mind and person of man. He is fitted to be the protector of England. If I, that is, if we propose him, he will assuredly be elected, and we will find, in the functions of that high office, scope for the towering powers of his mind. Even Peridita will rejoice, Peridita in whom ambition was a covered fire until she married Raymond, which event was for a time the fulfilment of her hopes. Peridita will rejoice in the glory and advancement of her lord, and coyly and prettily not be discontented with her share. In the meantime, we, the wise of the land, will return to our castle, and since in like, take to our usual labours until our friend shall require our presence and assistance here. The more Adrian reasoned upon this scheme, the more feasible it appeared. His own determination never to enter into public life was insurmountable, and the delicacy of his health was a sufficient argument against it. The next step was to induce Raymond to confess his secret wishes for dignity and fame. He entered while we were speaking. The way in which Adrian had received his project for setting him up as a candidate for the protectorship, and his replies had already awakened in his mind. The view of the subject which we were now discussing, his countenance and manner, betrayed irresolution and anxiety, but the anxiety arose from a fear that we shall not prosecute, or not succeed in our idea, and his irresolution from a doubt whether we should risk a defeat. A few words from us decided him, and hope and joy sparkled in his eyes. The idea of embarking in a career so congenial to his early habits and cherished wishes made him as before energetic and bold. We discussed his chances, the merits of the other candidates, and the dispositions of the voters. After all, we miscalculated. Raymond had lost much of his popularity, and was deserted by his peculiar partisans. Absence from the busy stage had caused him to be forgotten by the people, His former parliamentary supporters were principally composed of royalists who had been willing to make an idol of him when he appeared as the heir of the earldom of Windsor, but who were indifferent to him when he came forward with no other attributes and distinctions than they conceived to be common to many of themselves. Still he had many friends, admirers of his transcendent talents. His presence in the house, his eloquence, address, and imposing beauty, were calculated to produce an electric effect. Adrian also, notwithstanding his reclusive habits and theories, so adverse to the spirit of party, had many friends, and they were easily induced to vote for a candidate of his selection. The Duke of and Mr. Ryland, Lord Raymond's old antagonist, were the other candidates. The Duke was supported by all the aristocrats of the Republic, who considered him the proper representative. Ryland was the popular candidate. When Lord Raymond was first added to the list, his chance of success appeared small. We retired from the debate which had followed on his nomination. We his nominators mortified. He dispirited to excess. Perdita reproached us bitterly. Her expectations had been strongly excited. She had urged nothing against our project. On the contrary, she was evidently pleased by it. But its evident ill-success changed the current of our ideas. She felt that, once awakened, Raymond would never return unrepining to Windsor. His habits were unhinged, his restless mind roused from its sleep, ambition must now be his companion through life, and if he did not succeed in the present attempt, she foresaw that unhappiness and cureless discontent would follow. Perhaps her own disappointment added a sting to her thought and words. She did not spare us and our own reflections added to our disquietude. It was necessary to follow up our nomination, and to persuade Raymond to present himself to the electors on the following evening. For a long time he was obstinate. He would embark in a balloon. He would sail for a distant quarter of the world, where his name and humiliation were unknown. But this was useless. His attempt was registered, his purpose published through the world, His shame should never be raised from the memories of men. It was as well to fail at least after a struggle as to fly now at the beginning of his enterprise. From the moment that he adopted this idea, he was changed. His depression and anxiety fled. He became all life and activity. The smile of triumph shone on his countenance, determined to pursue his object to the uttermost. His manner and expression seemed ominous of the accomplishment of his wishes. Not so, Perdita. She was frightened by his gaiety, for she dreaded a greater revulsion at the end. If his appearance even inspired us with hope, it only rendered the state of her mind more painful. She feared to lose sight of him, yet she dreaded to remark any change in the temper of his mind. She listened eagerly to him, yet tantalized herself by giving to his words a meaning foreign to their true interpretation and adverse to her hopes. She dared not be present at the contest, yet she remained at home a prey to double solicitude. She wept over her little girl, she looked, she spoke, as if she dreaded the occurrence of some frightful calamity. She was half mad from the effects of uncontrollable agitation. Lord Raymond presented himself to the house, with fearless confidence and insinuating address, after the Duke of and Mr. Ryland had finished their speeches, he commenced. Assuredly he had not conned his lesson, and at first he hesitated, pausing in his ideas and in the choice of his expressions. By degrees he warmed, his words flowed with ease, his language was full of vigour, and his voice of persuasion. He reverted to his past life, his successes in Greece, his favourite home. Why should he lose this? now that added years, prudence, and the pledge which his marriage gave to his country, ought to increase rather than diminish his claims to confidence. He spoke of the state of England, the necessary measures to be taken to ensure its security, and confirm its prosperity. He drew a glowing picture of its present situation. As he spoke, every sound was hushed, every thought suspended by intense attention. His graceful elocution enchained the senses of the hearers. In some degree also he was fitted to reconcile all parties. His birth pleased the aristocracy. His being the candidate recommended by Adrian, a man intimately allied to the popular party, caused a number who had no greater reliance either on the Duke or Mr. Ryland to range on his side. The contest was keen and doubtful. Neither Adrian nor myself would have been so anxious if our success had depended on our exertions, but we had egged our friend on to the enterprise, and it became us to ensure his triumph. Idris, who entertained the highest opinion of his abilities, was warmly interested in the event, and my poor sister, who dared not hope, and to whom fear was misery, was plunged into a fever of disquietude. Day after day passed while we discussed our projects for the evening, and each night was occupied by debates which offered no conclusion. At last the crisis came. The night when Parliament, which had so long delayed its course, must decide, as the hour of twelve passed and the new day began. It was by virtue of the Constitution dissolved, its power extinct. We assembled at Raymond's house. We and our partisans. At half-past five o'clock we proceeded to the house. Idris endeavoured to calm Perdita, but the poor girl's agitation deprived her of all power of self-command. She walked up and down the room, gazed wildly when anyone entered, fancying that they might be the announcers of her doom. I must do justice to my sweet sister. It was not for herself that she was thus agonized. She alone knew the weight which Raymond attached to his success. Even to us he assumed gaiety and hope, and assumed them so well, that we did not divine the secret workings of his mind. Sometimes a nervous trembling, a sharp dissonance of voice, and momentary fits of absence revealed to Perdita. The violence he did himself, but we, intent on our plans, observed only his ready laugh, his joke intruded on all occasions, the flow of his spirits, which seemed incapable of ebb. Besides, Perdita was with him in his retirement. She saw the moodiness that succeeded to this forced hilarity. She marked his disturbed sleep, his painful irritability. Once she had seen his tears, hers had scarce ceased to flow, since she had beheld the big drops which disappointed pride had caused to gather in his eye, but which pride was unable to dispel. What wonder, then, that her feelings were wrought to this pitch, I thus accounted to myself for her agitation, but this was not all, and the sequel revealed another excuse. One moment we ceased before our departure to take leave of our beloved girls. I had small hope of success, and entreated Idris to watch over my sister. As I approached the latter, she seized my hand and drew me into another apartment. She threw herself into my arms and wept and sobbed bitterly and long. I tried to soothe her. I bade her hope, I asked what tremendous consequences would ensue even on our failure. My brother, she cried, protector of my childhood, dear, most dear Lionel, my fate hangs by a thread. I have you all about me now, you the companion of my infancy. Adrian as dear to me as if bound by the ties of blood, Idris, the sister of my heart, and her lovely offspring. This... Oh, this may be the last time that you will surround me thus. Abruptly she stopped, and then cried, What have I said, foolish, false girl that I am? She looked wildly on me, and then suddenly calming herself, apologized for what she called her unmeaning words, saying that she must indeed be insane, for while Raymond lived, she must be happy. And then, though she still wept, she suffered me tranquilly to depart. Raymond only took her hand when he went, and looked on her expressively. She answered by a look of intelligence and assent. Poor girl! What she then suffered! I could never entirely forgive Raymond for the trials he imposed on her, occasioned as they were by a selfish feeling on his part. He had schemed if he failed in his present attempt, without taking leave of any of us, to embark for Greece, and never again to revisit England. Perdita acceded to his wishes— For his contentment was the chief object of her life, the crown of her enjoyment, but to leave us all, her companions, the beloved partners of her happiest years, and in the interim to conceal this frightful determination, was a task that almost conquered her strength of mind. She had been employed in arranging for their departure. She had promised Raymond during this decisive evening to take advantage of our absence, to go one stage of the journey and he, after his defeat was ascertained, would slip away from us and join her. Although, when I was informed of this scheme, I was bitterly offended by the small attention which Raymond paid to my sister's feelings, I was led by reflection to consider that he acted under the force of such strong excitement as to take from him the consciousness and, consequently, the guilt of a fault. If he had permitted us to witness his agitation, he would have been more under the guidance of reason, but his struggles for the shoe of composure, acted with such violence on his nerves as to destroy his power of self-command. I am convinced that, at the worst, he would have returned from the seashore to take leave of us, and to make us the partners of his council. But the task imposed on Perdita was not the less painful. He had exhorted from her a vow of secrecy, and her part of the drama, since it was to be performed alone was the most agonizing that could be devised. But to return to my narrative. The debates had hitherto been long and loud, they had often been protracted merely for the sake of delay, but now each seemed fearful lest the fatal moment should pass, while the choice was yet undecided. Unwanted silence reigned in the house, the members spoke in whispers, and the ordinary business was transacted with celerity and quietness during the first stage of the election, the Duke of had been thrown out. The question, therefore, lay between Lord Raymond and Mr. Ireland. The latter had felt secure of victory until the appearance of Raymond, and since his name had been inserted as a candidate, he had canvassed with eagerness. He had appeared each evening, impatience and anger marked in his looks, scowling on us from the opposite side of St. Stephen's, as if his mere frown would cost eclipse on our hopes. Everything in the English constitution had been regulated for the better preservation of peace. On the last day, two candidates only were allowed to remain, and to obviate, if possible, the last struggle between these. A bribe was offered to him who should voluntarily resign his pretensions. A place of great emolument and honor was given him, and his success facilitated at a future election. Strange to say, however, no instance had yet occurred where either a candidate had had recourse to this expedient. In consequence, the law had become obsolete, nor had been referred to by any of us in our discussions. To our extreme surprise, when it was moved that we should resolve ourselves into a committee for the election of the Lord Protector, the member who had nominated Ryland rose and informed us that this candidate had resigned his pretensions. His information was at first received with silence, a confused murmur succeeded, and, when the chairman declared Lord Raymond duly chosen, it amounted to a shout of applause and victory. It seemed as if, far from any dread of defeat, even if Mr. Ryland had not resigned, every voice would have been united in favor of our candidate. In fact, now that the idea of contest was dismissed, all hearts returned to their former respect and admiration of our accomplished friend. Each felt that England had never seen a protector so capable of fulfilling the arduous duties of that high office. One voice made of many voices, resounded through the chamber. It syllabled the name of Raymond. He entered. I was on the highest I was on one of the highest seats, and saw him walk up the passage to the table of the speaker. Native modesty of its disposition conquered the joy of his triumph. He looked round timidly. a mist seemed before his eyes. Adrian, who was beside me, hastened to him and jumping down the benches, was at his side in a moment. His appearance reanimated our friend, and when he came to speak and act, his hesitation vanished, and he shone out supreme in majesty and victory. The former protector tendered him the oats. And presented him with the insignia of office, performing the ceremonies of installation. The house then dissolved. The chief members of the state crowded around the new magistrate, and conducted him to the palace of government. Adrian suddenly vanished, and by the time that Raymond's supporters were reduced to our intimate friends merely, returned leading Idris to congratulate her friend on his success. But where was Perdita? In securing a solicitously and unobserved retreat in case of failure, Raymond had forgotten to arrange the mode by which she was to hear of his success, and she had been too much agitated to revert to this circumstance. When Idris entered, so far had Raymond forgotten himself, that he asked for my sister, one word, which told of her mysterious disappearance, recalled him adrian it is true had already gone to seek the fugitive imagining that her tameless anxiety had led her to the purlieus of the house and that some sinister event detained her but raymond without explaining himself suddenly quitted us and in another moment we heard him gallop down the street in spite of the wind and rain that scattered tempest over the earth we did not know how far he had to go and soon separated supposing that in a short time he would return to the palace with Pyrdita, and that they should not be sorry to find themselves alone. Perita had arrived with her child at Darford, weeping and inconsolable. She directed everything to be prepared for the continuance of their journey, and placing her lovely sleeping charge on a bed, passed several hours in acute suffering. Sometimes she observed the war of the elements, thinking that they also declared against her, and listened to the pattering of the rain in the gloom in Gisper. Sometimes she hung over the child, Tracing her resemblance to the father, and fearful lest in after life she would display the same passions and uncontrollable impulses that rendered him unhappy. Again, with a gush of pride and delight, she marked in the features of her little girl the same smile of beauty that often irradiated Raymond's countenance. The sight of it soothed her. She thought of the treasure she possessed in the affections of her lord of his accomplishments surpassing those of his contemporaries, his genius, his devotion to her. Soon she thought that all she possessed in the world, except him, might well be spared, nay given with delight a propitiatory offering, to secure the supreme good she retained in him. Soon she imagined that fate demanded this sacrifice from her, as a mark she was devoted to Raymond, and that it must be made with cheerfulness. She figured to herself their life in the Greek isle he had selected for their retreat, her task of soothing him, her cares for the beauteous Clara, her rides in his company, her dedication of herself to his consolation. The picture then presented itself to her in such glowing colours that she feared the reverse, and a life of magnificence and power in London, where Raymond would no longer be hers only, nor she the sole source of happiness to him. So far as she merely was concerned, she began to hope for defeat. And it was only on his account that her feelings vacillated, as she heard him gallop into the courtyard of the inn. That he should come to her alone, weathered by the storm, careless of everything except speed. What else could it mean than that, vanquished and solitary, they were to take their way from native England, the scene of shame, and hide themselves in the myrtle groves of the Grecian Isles? In a moment she was in his arms— The knowledge of his success had become so much a part of himself that he forgot that it was necessary to impart it to his companion. She only felt in his embrace a dear assurance that while he possessed her, he would not despair. This is kind, she cried. This is noble, my own beloved. Oh, fear not disgrace or lowly fortune, while you have your perdita. Fear not sorrow, while our child lives and smiles. Let us go even where you will. The love that accompanies us will prevent our regrets. Locked in his embrace she spoke thus, and cast back her head, seeking an assent to her words in his eyes. They were sparkling with ineffable delight. Why, my little lady protectoress, said he playfully, what is this you say? And what pretty scheme have you woven of exile and obscurity? What a brighter web, a golden woven tissue, is that which in truth you ought to contemplate. He kissed her brow, but the wayward girl, half sorry at his triumph, agitated by swift change of thought, hid her face in his bosom and wept. He comforted her, he instilled into her his own hopes and desires, and soon her countenance beamed with sympathy. How very happy were they that night! How full into bursting was their sense of joy! End of chapter 6 Recording by Monsbrou. Ruslaks, Finland